Hey, 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 it's Vince in the Bay here with another edition of the Vince in the Bay podcast. This episode, my guest is security researcher MG. What's up, MG? Welcome to the program. What's up? Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. Any relation to Mick G, the director, the music video director? (laughs) No. No? Okay. So... MG, tell me tell me a little bit about yourself and uh, how you got into the security industry. Yeah, um, well, let's see. I have been a jack of all, kind of a, a generalist in IT for 16, 17 years. And a significant portion of that um, always would be security-oriented for me. And, you know, it goes back into high school and middle school, decent overlap there, but... As the industry has started to become much more security focused, of course, portions of my job become more focused. Now, uh, my day job is kind of you know head of IT, ownership of you know small hundred to three hundred person company, uh, employee companies that um, you know need need a jack of all IT to kind of run their stuff. So uh, security has over the, I don't know, probably last five or six years become a really big portion of the industry focus and been getting to that scene a lot more as a result. Um, and that's, that's kind of the the summary of where I'm at. So I found, I found you, like I find almost everybody now on the internet, on Twitter, once you started posting these videos of these different USB devices that you were connecting into computers and having them blow up and and uh, catch on fire and stuff like that. It, that kind of caught my attention. I, I love little little uh, gad- gadgetry and, and and pranks and stuff like that. And I thought that was pretty cool. Awesome. How, how did you? It, it seems like some of the stuff that you that you share on the on the internet and and um, that that I guess would follow a fall outside of your day job. That sort of research. Wh- what what made you decide to 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 get into it seems like you're what you're doing is like a cross between hardware and software hacking Definitely. like like how did how did you how did you come to that yeah, yeah. Um, I, I definitely jump into random projects this specific uh, iteration of them um, I think that was about probably eight eight or ten months ago. I just got it in my head this vision of an exploding USB drive. I saw on Twitter a picture of a USB drive, but inside of it was a firecracker attached to some sort of ignition mechanism, right? That was, you know, you you have a visceral reaction to that when you see that, right? Most people did, I did, kind of stuck in my head, but uh, eventually I started thinking, hey, what if you could combine that with the USB rubber ducky, which is Hack 5's um, very well-known. They, they kind of popularized uh, the HID attack platform, if that makes sense. Um, Wait, let me stop you right yes. there. What the hell is an HID attack platform exactly? Yes. Excellent question. So the, the basis of the ducky is um, when you plug a USB keyboard into a computer – um, the vast majority of them automatically accept that. It says, cool, you are a keyboard, just start typing. Um, but you can emulate that in a very small you know, thumb drive or even smaller, as I did. Um, basically, you plug it in, the chip on the uh, flash drive, or you know, what, there's, there's multiple ways to kind of implement this, but the hardware on the USB drive says, I am a keyboard. And the OS accepts it, and then it types a predetermined script very fast, 
as you know, fast as uh, fa- much faster than a, a human could, and um, on unlocked machines and a couple different other iterations, uh, has been used kind of as a an approach to security. Like, hey, if your machine's unlocked, you plug a drive in, and all this bad crap can happen. So that is the summary of kind of how an HID HID human interface device uh, attack platform works. Great, and uh, and we have right in front of us here some. Uh, we actually have. You brought in, MG brought in a uh, rubber ducky. Yes. And um, what do you have programmed, programmed on that right now? Probably nothing, actually. I got, uh, a, I got a handful of them at home. <laughs> yeah. Rotate through them. I just I just got one, and uh, I rickrolled myself with one for the first time. There you go. It's fun. That was really cool. They, like, they're totally fun for pranks. <laughs> yeah. Because I, I, I've known of them for a while, and I finally – just decided I'm going to get one and just play around with it, see what I could do. I do my first hello world and all that stuff. And it's, it's such a rush to, to, you know, once you go through the the whole process and then boom, there's, I just Rick rolled myself. That's pretty cool. Right. And then, and then it makes me think of all the other things that, that, that could potentially, I could potentially do with it. And so now you're taking the, this same concept and you're applying it to, to other devices and other other forms of hit attacks, um, you've developed a USB cable. That, yeah, yeah. Um, tell tell me about that one. Yeah, I mean, there, so there's kind of a natural progression, and ultimately, I when when I approached this exploding USB drive concept, I initially picked up the what is it like forty five or fifty dollar uh, rubber ducky, and I'm like, oh, I can just modify it a bit, uh-huh. and it was kind of a pain to do that with the with the knowledge I had at the time. And the other problem is they, it takes up most of the space in a flash drive. So over, I don't know, a couple months, I did a lot of research that ultimately led to a kind of stripped down version of the, the Ducky that I could shrink down to a much smaller package. And once I had that extremely small package, which uh, I think it was like five millimeters by eight millimeters when I was done, substantially different than, I, I don't even know how big a, a full fat flash drive is, but um, once I had that stripped down, then I could, you know, fit uh, whatever I wanted in there, whether it was, you know, the explosion portion of it, the, the smoke, which is a little smoke cake. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you need the room for the activities uh, with, within there. So once I had that small enough, um, you know, I got, got the exploding portion of this done, but then I realized, Hey, this thing is really small. I can start putting that in other places like the boots of cables. Um, I initially did that on kind of the, the standard USB-A cable, um, that you, you know, the end of, um, on just about every interface. Mm-hmm. Um, Apple has started, uh, pushing their laptops, the recent ones to a much smaller USB-C standard. But, you know, they're, they're much smaller than the boot of a uh, USB-A end. So a lot of people were like, no, you, you know, we'll just use the USB-Cs. Like, well, then, you know, I gotta, naturally, since you said we can't do it, I'm going to figure out, you know, how to put it in there. So mm-hmm. ultimately, you know, figured out how to put it in there. And that's kind of the, the pathway of just uh, going, going from the, the large, shrinking it down, and then finding other uses for a much uh, a shrunken package. So, so you use the you basically just replicated the rubber ducky technology, mm-hmm. but just shrunk it down. Yeah, yeah. Did you did you modify anything else in any way, or other than just kind of sizing it down? Yeah, definitely. And so, so this existed, you know, before the ducky. There's been a lot of other circuits out there. People use like the Teensy. There's these uh, chips. Uh, so 
after I decided that the ducky was not going to work, I went and found these platforms that um, it's it's a an open source circuit based on the it's called an AT Tiny chip. Um, it's similar in form to what the Ducky has. It's another Atmel brand. Uh, you know, that's that's the manufacturer of their chips. The yeah. Atmel also makes the AT Tiny, so it's like a it's a slower and smaller spaced chip, but it's also you know physically smaller footprint. So I found something called the DigiSpark, which is this, I don't know, one inch by one inch square that, you know, you plug it into your USB port and acts in, you you can do a lot of things with it, but you can program it to emulate a keyboard and do similar things as the ducky. So that's where that came from. And that's kind of the path I started on and then ultimately took that circuit and shrunk it down even more. So I definitely did not invent that. Uh, I just shrunk it down and removed a lot of the components. What I did add was effectively a a switch. So there's a lot of um, legs on this chip. There's eight eight legs, and there's a couple on there that you can use uh, via software. You can turn the, the legs on or off. You know, like like a, a a switch, right? But they can only push out a little bit of power. Something like a motor. Um, Maybe a uh, nichrome slash canthal wire. That, that, uh, so vaporizers, right? That little wire in there, you know, you feed it a certain amount of voltage and it glows, but it takes a lot of power. The little legs on these chips could not do that. So ultimately, I got these very small uh, MOSFETs, effectively, which is basically a switch, right? It's got three legs, um, you know, power in, power out, and then uh, third leg, which is the control switch, right? If there's power going to it, it turns on. Power going, it turns off. Uh, added that to it and another resistor, and effectively I could power anything via software straight from the USB port. So whatever the USB port can kick out, which is generally somewhere between you know, one, two plus amps, depending on which format of uh, USB it is. Uh, I mean, that's that's enough to kick off a lot of other um, payloads effectively, whether that's exploding or or not. You know, I can turn on um, little wireless chips if I wanted to embed them in there as well and do wireless attacks. So, so um, it, it's been my, it's just in my limited, limited, limited experience. When I pr- plug in my rubber ducky, I have to wait for it to execute everything before I can take it out. Yep. Is there a way to put something in a drive, wait like a second and then pull it out and it executes everything after the fact. Uh, because it feels like to me, like these, these attacks, they have to be done when somebody's away from their desk yes. and not around and you have to kind of swoop in there. It's not something you could just like slide by chink, 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 and take it out <laughs> and then keep walking, you know? Yeah. There's, I mean, there's a couple. Uh, so it's just to to mention this. I, I'll also use these uh, interfaces to do sysadmin type stuff. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. kind of you know human scripting. Uh, set up Raspberry Pis without having a keyboard and everything attached to it. Just plug it in, you know, set up script. But yes, there. Um, that is kind of an inherent limitation of the you know HID attack is you need to have like an unlocked computer typically in front of you. And somebody not staring at you. Now, if you're a good social engineer, you can you know plug that drive in for a couple of seconds while they're you know going to get somebody for you, right? Like at reception, uh, a lot of really good social engineers will do that. And the uh, the to ex- kind of go back to your initial question, which is can this uh, the 
the window of time be reduced. A good way to do that is to have maybe a payload that gets downloaded and runs. So you get like a, a really short string that says download from this URL and execute. And then the the bulk of it um, is, is being downloaded for you instead of typed out. Mm-hmm. And then you run it that way. So that's, you know, one approach. It really, it's, it's definitely about, you know, reducing it. Um, unless there's, so there's um, other things out there like the WHID, uh, I think WHID.ninja is the guy's site. Um, Lucas and others uh, do this on Twitter. I can link you to those guys. But they add a wireless interface to the, the HID uh, attack platform. So what that allows you to do is remotely trigger it and program it if you have a wireless connection. And, you know, naturally you're thinking, hey, maybe we could add cellular to that to get further away. And a lot of people are thinking about that and messing around with that. But basically what you could do in that case is maybe plug it into a machine, leave it there and program it to kick off in the middle of the night or something like that when people aren't around. Now, yeah, there's some inherent assumptions about the state of the machine, whether it's locked and if whether you know their password, et cetera. You know, there's, there's lots of things like that. But uh, doing the execution of it remotely instead of at the moment you physically plug it in is another approach to um, that situation. Cool. What other goodies do you right now mg's got like a bunch of little trinkets here and i'm wondering what what haven't we talked about yet yeah um let's see i can step a little bit more through the the next stages of the the hid stuff what i did yeah um and then we'll move on to these guys <laughs> yeah this um, is yeah let's do this sort of like yeah, yeah, totally. the evolution of your just slide that of your hackering can have a timeline right here there we go the initial iteration of this, I used, uh, I think it's called Protoboard. It's um, really small copper squares on a PCB. Uh, you, it's meant for kind of prototyping with surface mount components. Um, prior to this project, I had actually not done any work with surface mount components, soldering anything like that. So that was uh, part of the learning. That was it was fun. Um, this this worked really well. We got a pretty small package. I think it was a, what was it, 5 by 10 10 5 by 12 millimeter package you know great but then uh, i think uh one of the southern california uh, defcon groups said hey we want to have like a build party on these I'm like well that's i don't know how to deliver like an instruction set and tools and everything to make that happen so clearly what i need to do is get uh get a pcb made like and that's that's effectively the next step that kind of pushed me into the cables um so i i, I made uh, a PCB. It was my first time doing this, and you know, there's a whole array on here. What is it like, hundred or so on this on this chip? Uh, probably like fifty, but um, that you you cut each one of those out. Um, this is before I figured out you could actually have that done for so you. So each one of these is its own thing. Exactly. Uh, yeah. That's, that's so. Wait. So so you designed that? Yeah. Right there. Yeah. Yeah. How does that work again? So you you work it out on the on the, yes. the surface mount thing, yeah, yeah, and then you send that off, and they print out they print out these, right? Yeah, uh, separate. So so this surface mount thing was just part of the the prototyping design, and yeah. uh, I was using like copper tape to make traces and stuff like that. It, uh-huh. I, I wasn't. I, I did a decent amount of the prototyping on the DigiSpark itself. I knew the pathways on paper. I worked those out. So that was yeah. That's where the um, Protoboard came in. Um, I had a lot of uh, failed attempts, but ultimately, yeah, got that working, proved it works. You know, stripped it down to I think it was three, about eight different 
individual chips that were required to act as a keyboard and then allow the high current um, power supply to work. Once I had that done, I, I knew exactly what the logical circuit should be. So I had to take a different approach, you know, program that in um, basically software that allows you to design PCBs, you know, one layer, two layer, whatever you want. This is a two layer. Um, took a lot, of, a lot of playing around and eventually got it. It's a relatively simple circuit. So, you know, I had that going for me. It wasn't too complex. And I probably broke a whole lot of best practices doing this because I wanted it even smaller. So if I took the default uh, footprints that are supplied for these components, this thing would probably be about 50% bigger. I just started, you know, pulling out the calipers and measuring exactly how much space these took and shrinking it down exactly uh, to that limit. I was putting, uh, they're called, I think, vias, uh, the little holes that go from the top of the board down to the bottom to, you know, connect. I was putting those right under the pads and right where, where the legs will touch the board. Probably not a good thing, but, you know, things like that were required to get this done. And then this was my first iteration at it. I think I, this is, uh, I don't know, it's almost two millimeters thick on the board. It's probably 1.6 technically. Um, really thick board. I didn't need it this thick. It's just that's the uh, cheapest place I could find at the time. And, you know, I got these runs done. I sent one of these um, off to the guys in Southern California, run their uh, build party. I don't know if that ever happened, but um, that's that's where we got to this. You know, you design it. It's kind of like a, you know, Photoshop for PCBs almost, you know, mm-hmm. moving the lines around, similar kind of interface. But that's, that's uh, I don't know, probably took a week to do that. And then from there, what else do we have here? What's What do you call What do you call that? USB. Uh, what, what, what do you call just in general? This? Yes. So these, the, you know, the the square connectors that you're used to, those are called USB A. Yeah. That's the what's. You, but but the thing, this housing part. Oh here, yeah. What's I, that? I'm referring to that as the boot. The boot. Uh, I, okay. I, I make up okay. words too. Right. So. No, that works for me. <laughs> so so the boot on the USB A is is you know gives you enough room to to stick this stuff into. Oh, yeah. Plenty of but, plenty of space. But but now you've got a you've got everything moving towards USB C. Yes. And now you're dealing with a boot that's half the size or maybe a third of the size. Yes, exactly. So on the USB A, you know that uh, the boot is the 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 part we're talking about is the kind of big plastic piece that you hold on to when plugging and unplugging the uh, the cable. Uh, in there there's you know there's a decent amount of space uh, to connect the the uh, physical cable to the uh, solder pads in there but um for a five by eight millimeter chip you can also kind of shove them inside there the official apple cables get a little bit smaller so you know you get to work within space constraints um but there's also USB-C, which is on a lot of phones these days, and the new MacBooks for the last, I think it's two years now, have had these little uh, USB-C interfaces. Nice, because you can plug it either way and it works. It's great. Very small. Uh, on the, the part that really excites me is on the MacBooks, their power is also USB-C. So you need to charge your laptop with a data cable. And typically, much you know, your your MacBook uh, power brick, you know, it's probably shared in conference rooms, you know, common spaces, things like that. Especially at uh, companies, definitely at my company, uh, a lot of my friends' companies, same, same setup, right? It's it's this um, cable just hanging out, but now it's a USB cable. So if you can get inside of that cable, or even the power charger itself, uh, either would work in this scenario when they want to, you know, charge their cable. They're also plugging in potentially your uh, USB attack gear. Um, 
there's there's certainly some situational questions. You know, that's usually they're going to be physically on the laptop at that time. So you've going back to the earlier part of this conversation where you were asking about, you know, don't, oh, they're going to see what's happening. So right. yeah, you got to think about that. And there's a lot of, a lot of questions there. But from an HID attack perspective, yeah, those those are issues. But yes, um, how do we get that in the boot though? Um, ultimately. Uh, I first thought about this when I was shopping uh, around on Amazon looking for kind of repair components for a cable. I found this really clunky USB-A boot. Um, I don't know. You could probably fit like four of these connectors inside of a USB-A. Sorry, four of these chips inside of a USB-A boot. Uh, Then I started looking around for the USB-C boots. And, yeah, they do sell them. Um, Pull some over here. These are effectively them. Um... And there's probably about a third of the uh, boot that is open. It's meant to kind of give you space for you know, soldering. And the, the cable has kind of opened up uh, inside of there. So there, there's enough space to put a chip in there. Mm-hmm. Um, so at a minimum, yeah, I, I immediately got these working as uh, you know stealth cables. And that's what I you know, put up on Twitter. And uh, playing around with added functionality. You know, in, in a cable, you're going to expect that thing to charge your phone, for instance. It's a USB lightning cable. Uh, so I've got that basic functionality working. And then there's also, you know, you're going to expect it to potentially pass data. So I haven't got this fully working yet because I need to kind of rework some boards and, you know, there's, you're, you're doubling or tripling the amount of, uh, components you're putting in here, but there are very small, uh, like two port USB hubs effectively. So I can put a hub inside the boot as well. I kind of, I'm, what I'll probably do is combine, uh, both you know the hub and the attack platform together in a single PCB to save space, but yeah, you can you can effectively shove a two port USB hub inside there, and that allows the uh, HID attack to come in and your whatever device you're plugging in on the other end, so it works as expected. Now, if you say delay your HID attack by you know, a minute, two minutes, you know whatever you want, hour. Um, that'll be plugged in, your device will be charging or syncing just as you expect, and then the HID kicks off. So that's kind of a, an answer to how do we how do we handle the on-screen presence. So, oh, by the way, if you're listening, we will have illustrations uh, on my blog, vincentthebay.com, and hopefully uh, what we're describing to you, you can uh, figure out by seeing it visually there. You also have here... You were talking about the what, – what, what, what's this? this? Is a lightning cable? Yeah, that's a lightning cable. Okay, so you, you have uh, created a, a hid attack through a what appears to be a Mac lightning cable that mm-hmm. somebody would use to charge their iPad or their iPhone or, or their iPod. Yes. Tell me about that because yeah. you, you've got – we've, we have in front of us the, the actual, the real legit – uh, Mac lightning cable and then the malicious evil MG <laughs> They look pretty cable. similar, don't they? They look pr- pretty, pretty Slight similar. Differences. Yes. Only like, side by side you're going to notice. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and when you brought them out, I didn't notice until they, yeah, until I really looked at it. Yeah, definitely. So um, this was by request. So uh, Kevin Mitnick uh, reached out to me and he kind of wanted one of these for his you know, stage um things he does so uh, the typical lightning cable you've seen it's you know got a lightning connector on one end and and again a usb a connector Mm -hmm. on the other um basically the same approach uh i shove it in the usb a side now uh lightning cable well apple usb uh sorry apple usb cables 
they tend to be a lot more low profile than the much bulkier uh, initial USB A cable that I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, the boot on that is a lot smaller. Yeah, so a lot more compact. Yeah, exactly right. So you know, start shopping around again and find what is very similar to uh, an empty boot. It's meant for you know repairing or making your own cables. Generally, where you get these from, mm-hmm. um, and just barely enough space inside of these to again shove shove this in here. Uh, the the USB C cables are probably the the smallest that I've dealt with. So you know if you can fit in there, you can basically fit it anywhere else. But uh, I mean another that's what she said, <laughs> or he, or anyway, continue. So so it's um, the other thing you you, you kind of think about here is that a lot of these cables, like these USB C charge cables, I think they're like thirty bucks or something. Mm-hmm. You know the the Apple Lightning ones are twenty bucks. So. Um, a lot of people aren't going to think about this as uh, a pathway of you know, danger. The, the ducky interface, you know, the, the USB drive, people see that now, and a lot more people are aware there, of yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. Um, and hopefully, you know, now that, you know, the exploding drive out, is out there, you know, they're even more aware yeah. of that. Uh, which is kind of the whole point for the record. It's kind of yeah. evoke that. But um, when that's that's kind of where I went with the the cables themselves. People just really don't think about a cable, and you know those things are expensive. I would probably pick one up and use it if I saw one of those. That's that's the whole point. Um, so it, it changes the way you think about this. And uh, some friends actually pointed out that. What I had been doing here is kind of similar to what's in the NSA Ant catalog that uh, got leaked a while back, where they are embedding, um, and they they had more functionality than I do, of course, but um, you know, uh, wireless transmission and things like that, um, which I think I actually could probably pull off if I uh, had a little more resources. But anyway, yeah, NSA Ant catalog. I think they the prices on something kind of similar to this with a little more functionality was like fifty units for like a million dollars. Dude, these are way cheaper. <laughs> uh-huh. But yeah, that that was an interesting thing. I didn't quite uh, think about that till quite a bit later. That uh, these kind of overlap in format to what the NSA was rolling out. I don't know, probably like ten years ago now. Another thing that you that I saw on your Twitter feed, you posted about a parasitic USB connector, uh-huh. and it and it's got like a little hook on it. Yes. What's that all about? What is, what does that do? <laughs> So, is that like like you? I can't pull it. Out. I physically can't. Why won't this wig come off? Type of thing. It's one of the the potential uses. So, um, w- what I was thinking about is you know, and back to the USB drive uh, format again. I was I was wanting to put different payloads in there. One of them was kind of a wireless you know, deauthentication grenade. The the thing that'll effectively cause all nearby wireless devices to disconnect from their network or you, know, you can target them if you want. But the problem is, yeah, you can bring one in yourself as an attacker. Yeah, cool. But I like the idea of having you know, the victim do it themselves. Um, so, you know, how do you how do you turn it on? How do you arm it um, after it's been, you know, safely brought inside, you know, based on, of course, them plugging it in. Hey, it's in. Now run, the thing is you need a lot of power to um, keep one of these running for any point in time, which would be great uh, if I could, you know, fit the battery in there. But that just wasn't realistic. So, you know, where do I get power? And like, wait a second, they're going to be plugged into USB. It would be great if we could keep them plugged in because uh, then you've got effectively unlimited power until, you know, they tear it out um, or, you know, or turn the machine off. But that that's kind of the approach I had there. Um, ultimately, there's a lot more you could do. So, yeah, this is a little hook 
Um, I didn't fully develop this yet because I just I, I kind of hop around to different things. You can probably notice as I even talk here, yeah. <laughs> jump around. But um, the the concept uh, was yeah, a little hook will kind of be triggered by a some sort of actuator, an electrical actuator, and that would be fired off by the the switch that I developed that allows you know high current. So that would fire the lever on the uh, hook hook inside your USB port, and then you cannot pull it out. Um, yeah, I guess you could do things like ransoming the USB port if you wanted some, you know, silly stuff like that. But the software inside of the chip can say hook and unhook effectively. And you, you program that in and just, there you go. So that's, that's the basics of that. To me, that, that sounds like a much more practical, uh, attack. It's have like you said, having the, the tar- target victim, whatever, have them do it themselves. Yes. Like they think they're just charging up they or connecting their iPhone to their computer yes. and little do they know something bad is about to happen. God knows what. Um, and um, now I, I think I've seen some of these with, with uh, transmitters in them so they can plug it in and then like, what's the, what's the, what, what are some of the applications for that? I'm trying to think. So I, there are other people kind of, as I mentioned that are developing, uh, wireless connectivity to uh, what is you know an HID attack platform that you can program it and and trigger it and even live type on it if you wanted to, which is really cool, and definitely looks like some people are playing around with uh, you know two G three G type connectivity. I certainly mm-hmm. started playing around with that, but in terms of transmitters, the only thing I remember doing recently was playing around there. Uh, this package called an ESP eight two six six, or I think there's also the eight two five five, which is slightly smaller. There's these little, effectively, we can call that a thumb drive size chip, yeah. um, self-contained, very, very similar in nature. But yeah, this, this, these only work on 2.4 gigahertz. So there's that. I, I would love to find something equivalent that does this on five. But uh, yeah, what I made was uh, in in that form. Um, started off with what you kind of call like a deauthentication grenade. The code is out there, so I didn't really even develop any of that. What you can do, and actually this will potentially even connect over into the Amazon topic, what you can do here is, um, yeah, it, it looks for any device in, in range, disconnects it, but you can also scope it down. Uh, and guess, this is the deauth process? Yes, exactly. Okay. So the basics of deauth um, for anybody who, who would like that. So just about all of your wireless gear, when it's connected, there is you, – you you may have it, and most people should have it set up in a way that the communications are encrypted between, like, the base station and the client. But there is something called management frames, uh, according to the spec, set up in a way that is not encrypted, which means you can also spoof them. Uh, so one of these management frames is called deauthentication. It's an a deauthentication frame. You you send it to either the client and or the base station and say disconnect now, and it that's in the immediate thing it does. It just disconnects. It'll then try to you know reconnect and go through the process. But if you keep slamming it with the deauth, it just stays down. Super frustrating. It's useful for a lot of things besides just pure disruption, like uh, the the Hack5's Wi-Fi pineapple, right? That's where you can be a rogue wireless access point and your device will connect to it. There's, I won't go too deep into that, but basically step one of that can routinely be deauthenticate them from their current wireless network so that they go searching for a new one and hop on yours. So that's, you know, another example. 
Um, so what I did is set one up in you know kind of a thumb drive that looked for the OUI. Uh, craps. I do not remember what that stands for off the top of my head. But I can tell you. I can oh, tell yes. you. I can tell you. Hang on. The OUI is that what you said? Yes. Uh, organizational unique identifier. Yes, that one exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, Can't believe you don't know. There's only there's only like <laughs> eight bazillion acronyms out there. Um, so so what that means effectively is uh, every piece of hardware that communicates on uh, the network, whether it's you know a, a physical you know, plugged in via Ethernet or wireless, uh, they're assigned MAC addresses, right? Uh, the hardware address, the First uh, three, basically the first half of that is the OUI. So you get your like I have uh, your your MacBook in front of me. Well, if we had two MacBooks next to each other, they're gonna generally have the same OUI, the first prefix, because that is assigned by an organization for when you're creating a, a hardware line, right? So the negative of that, or at least you know what I was using, is I went and found the OUI for all Nest cameras, right? And what you can do is uh, when you're deauthenticating, you can instead look for that OUI. It says, oh, hey, that is a Nest camera. Take just that one down. So you can, um, if you've seen, uh, what is that? Um, Altered Carbon, right? The, the Ghost Walker. You can be like that guy. That guy um, effectively was able to scrub himself from cameras. That awesome. But, you know, you, you'd walk around and there would be a kind of a black hole of cameras around you just being off off the grid. So, you know, kind of a fun demo again, right? Mm-hmm. Of deauthentication. There's, there's a, there are fixes for that. Uh, the primary one being uh, a spec that is kind of, I think it's just in proposal right now, or you, uh, I, I don't remember what stage it is, but basically you can encrypt the management frames. That's, that's the right way to deal with this. Or you can do some really hacky stuff and um, basically ignore some management frames, but it's not quite as recommended. But yeah, that was that was kind of the uh, approach to what you were asking. It was it was a fun one. And then so this deauthing leads us to this whole Amazon Key yes. thing. Tell yes. us tell us about Amazon Key and your research connected to that, and the whole story behind you getting the attention of Amazon that that usually takes what Trump one tweet to do. <laughs> took you it took you a couple. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, this started on Twitter again. You know, I was kind of postulating with a, a few people that um, I think somebody posted a some, – some TV station did an interview with a few guys sitting in somebody's house on laptops manually typing in deauthentication commands into a laptop. This was a security uh, firm. I believe they're RhinoSec or Rhino Security. Mm-hmm. They uh, figured out that if you deauthenticate this lock – and you know, let's rewind a little bit to explain how these locks work. Um, you get a smart lock that you put on your door and it controls the deadbolt of your door. Uh, you can You can – Control that basically via your phone. And there's also a camera that connects uh, it's this system. So the camera watches your door and the, you know, the lock opens and closes. Now, they've uh, set up this you know, Amazon key service. The idea is that you have an Amazon delivery. Maybe you are – I don't know. Maybe you're in an apartment complex with a lot of traffic in and out or just you know, there's nowhere safe to put a package outside your door. You live on the streets of San Francisco. You're probably not going to have your UPS guy leave your stuff there. So the idea is the delivery person can open your door, drop your package in, close the door. You know, whatever you think about that. I mean, there's, you know, there's creepy. There's you know, a, lot, a lot of words to describe it. Um, but I can understand why some people would use it. Anyway, uh, what 
Rhino security figured out is that you can send a deauthentication to the uh, camera. The camera is the gateway for the lock. So the, cam- the camera is on your wireless network, and the camera and the lock speak on a separate type of radio. It's called Zigbee. Uh, they found out that once the door has been told to open and it opens, you deauthenticate it and can never then receive the lock command. So um, from their their perspective, now they weren't using the driver application, nor was I, so, but there was kind of this uh, expectation that if a delivery was going to happen, you could force the lock to stay open. Now, Amazon has since added uh, some ways of fixing this. They also found that when you deauthenticate a camera, the last frame was sticking around. So if you were looking, you're going to see, oh, there's my door closed when it's actually open in that scenario. So again, this has all been fixed. So yay. But uh, when I saw that, I was just like, hey, you know, that's a couple guys. You know, they got on TV. You got a couple guys manually typing this out. It doesn't really resonate with the average consumer. So I wanted at a minimum, just automate that with a Raspberry Pi, right? A little Dropbox. You see a box. The attack is now a box. It's the magic box, right? You put it near the door. And it just – it's automated, right? So the basic automation of that is look for the OUI of the camera that is known to be an Amazon key camera. And then you you know send the deauthentication. you got to figure out the timing. That was uh, the other portion I was playing around with. My assumption I, – I, it was a very loose timing, but I – you know, this is – barely working proof of concept. What I did is, you know, do the same thing Rhinosec did, and it would deauthenticate when the camera uh, turned on, and it would wait until the camera turned on, and then it would assume, hey, a delivery is about to happen, so, you know, kick off the deauth. Hopefully the lock has opened by then, and then, hey, it, it does the same thing. But I noticed that there's this very specific timing uh, that happens on the lock. So it's it's told... Your phone kicks off, sends the command down. The lock is told to open. It starts opening, and then there's you know about a what, let's call it two seconds of time where the padlock is physically opening. And then once it's physically opened, the padlock sends back, "Hey, I have successfully opened." And at that point, you know, it goes back to the phone, and the phone recognizes, "Hey, it's now opened." I, I noticed that if you manage to time the deauthentication while it's doing the physical uh, the physical opening. Uh, it the phone never hears back from the lock. So the lock is actually opened, but the, lo- uh, the phone has no idea. So at the time when I found this, they're uh, in the consumer app, not the delivery app. They uh, – it was this bug basically. It would fall back to the last known state, which was, you know, of course, locked. But now the door's open. So, you know, interesting scenario, and it, it, it didn't look as good. Now, to Amazon's credit, they, you know, they have things built in, like they'll have the driver, they're supposed to physically check the door and things like that. There's a lot more going on in the del- uh, the delivery driver's app itself that significantly, you know, this makes it almost a non-issue from that perspective. Um, that said, you know, I was only using the uh, the consumer side. So, yeah, that's kind of where that comes in. And, you know, again, using deauthentication again. It's not a very, you know, high skill approach. It's just, you know, something I had been playing around with on these components. And I figured, Hey, let's, let's try to use that again. And so you were able to, to, to successfully do this. Did you do it your, with, with your own house? Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, allegedly, uh, no, I, yeah. So I, I took, uh, you know, got one of the locks stuck it on the door, um, and just start playing around with it. That's yeah, the, t- the timing there. It probably would have been a little uh, better to you know run it on um, you know a little 
demo piece of hardware but it wouldn't look as cool like if you want to yeah. show it off you oh yeah you want to yeah yeah. So, yeah it has to it has to it, it the the demo that you put online the video yeah it looks very straightforward it's yeah it looks like magic and yeah. it's and yeah i think that's how you have to do it you have to simulate a, a live a, a real world situation to really sell definitely, it definitely when you, when you initially uh, finished with this did you disclose this straight to Amazon? What, what, what was your process of disclosure? Oh, God, this is a fun one. So <laughs> when I was just postulating this on uh, Twitter, it was just open, you know, for whoever was there. Um, somebody kind of jumped in and was like, hey, I do this stuff um, professionally. How about you delete those tweets and I'll go to Amazon for you? I'm like, oh, you know, deleting tweets kind of feels like you just want to steal my shit, but you know, whatever. I'm not going to delete them, but go ahead, have fun. Like, you know, that's not why I'm in. I'm just you're you know, mess around, right? So, um, so you weren't even you were doing this just for your own. Yeah, just, you weren't even thinking about like yeah. showing this to Amazon or anything. It was just to to, to just just having fun, showing off to to your hacker buddies. Yeah, when I first started postulating, I did yeah. look around initially. I'm like, well, how would I report this to Amazon? And the, the um. It, from a, an individual researcher side, there's um, not any real assurance about going into this. There's a, an issue in vulnerability disclosure that I've been pushing in many ways that uh, you need – Dropbox actually is a perfect example of how to do it, right? They recently did this. But you need to have a policy up there that says you can do whatever you want or they, they need to specifically list the things they will come after you for. So you're not going in there blind wondering if you're going to get sued. Like that is a, an assurance that would uh, make me want to go to them directly, but that wasn't up there. And I don't know that whole process. I'm not, it's not why I'm in it anyway. It's not fun. So I'm like, yeah, some other guy wants to do this or whatever. If you do what you want, like, here's, here's exactly how I do it. Told him. And then, you know, he supposedly went to Amazon. He, he was showing me some screenshots of the back and forth. Anyway, it didn't work out between him and Amazon. He showed me a screenshot that effectively made it look like Amazon said, you need a proof of concept. Uh, I saw that and I'm like, hey, okay, you want a proof of concept? Uh, let's let's actually throw this together in a pie, you know, and get a, get a couple things. So assembled it, you know, played with it for about a week, and you know, got it barely working, like just enough. So it's like, okay, this works on camera after like you know five, ten, twenty takes, whatever. I can't remember at the time to get all of those, but yeah, it was not working perfectly all the time, just enough to get get it on camera, throw it out there. And, um, then what happened? Yeah. Wired reached out to me, um, wanting to cover it like within 10 minutes of me posting that, which was kind of crazy. Uh, but they offered to also then be the proxy of like connecting me within Amazon. And, you know, at that point it's, you know, okay, let's do this. Let's make it happen. And, you know, went back and forth Their Uh, their security team was great. Like I was, I was very impressed by them. Uh, I the was security team at Amazon. Yeah. Yeah. The, the guys who I ended up t- talking to, they, they got it when I was talking to them. And then, uh, that's, that's why I kind of was weird when I was working with them, but their PR team was saying all this other it, it didn't really line yeah, up. The like, left hand doesn't yeah. know what the right hand's doing. Exactly. So I think there was some of that going on and, you know, caused some tensions there. And ultimately mm-hmm. they, they effectively confirmed to uh, press how it worked. And, I, you know, I, I went into this with the intent of, hey, we're going to embargo this, you know, that's the verbiage I was using anyway, um, until Amazon can release a fix. And then only to see later from, at least from my perspective, I'm not quite sure what happened there, but uh, Amazon, um, again, from my perspective, uh, 
I think it was Forbes. Yeah, I talked to Forbes and uh, said, yeah, this is how it works. I'm like, well, shit, it's out there now. I guess I got to then do my whole write-up. So I kicked that out there, and, you know, that was cool. Uh, it got fixed, but, you know, there was some some negatives there. Uh, an interesting thing is that um, later on, it was probably, I don't know, um, how long ago was that? Month? Month and a half? Um Amazon uh, reached out to me and they're like, hey, you want to come over for a day, um, fly some people out, we'll, we'll meet you and you can talk to us about you know, product security. And it, was, it was mutual back and forth and also vulnerability disclosure. So I could uh, kind of have a platform to talk to them and they're, they're genuinely interested about doing uh, improvements. Uh, the security on their side. Uh, again, I can't go into too much detail, NDAs and all that stuff, mm-hmm. but uh, there's a lot more going on there than I assumed initially. So I was actually pretty impressed with the general security of their platform, uh, just just for the key system and and that, that type of uh, platform. And uh, they seem to really uh, want to improve the disclosure pipeline. And that excites me a lot because, yeah, uh, Dropbox took a nice – kind of industry lead on this. but What, what, did, what did Dropbox do, by the yeah, way? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So Dropbox basically took, uh, you know, protect researchers stance and they offered up uh, a template that anybody else can use that is your vulnerability disclosure pipeline and uh, policy. Uh, basically, it, it again comes down to um, do not do X, Y, and Z and you're cool. That's awesome. That's that's gives you assurance compared to a lot of the companies that will just come after people. Um, so so I mean yeah, that was definitely part of my advice. So if if they start moving in that direction, that's a huge huge entity in the infosec space, and I would love to be able to point to Amazon as uh, you know somebody leading that, and you know even having some some hand in helping it, you know influence that. That would be great um, and, and help a lot of us researchers who are just doing this solo without legal support or anything. So now that you've been through the whole disclosure process, mm-hmm. um, what advice would you give both to researchers and to vendors? I mean, I, I, yeah. I seem like, I feel like I have kind of have the gist of it, but but could you expand on that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, for, from, let's start with the vendor side and jump into uh, researcher side. I would encourage basically any company that wants to kind of take take the you know industry direction of this that we seem to be moving in and making it safer for researchers. I, I know of many situations where individuals have not felt comfortable. They would. They would love to disclose, but they're not comfortable from a legal perspective. You know, you've I've got two kids, right? Like I that's that's risky. Like I want to be able to feed them. Um but there are laws in this country, you know, CFAA, for instance, you can pretty much get hit by the CFAA for just existing on the internet, the way it's worded. I'm a victim of the CFAA. I know from experience. Right. So, um, exactly. Right. It's like any, anything can be crafted under CFAA and you go to court. So if you've angered a company and there's many instances of this of researchers, there was a, I think a, a small, I think it was like an HIV community or something like that. They they freaked out and like threatened to infect the researcher with HIV because it's like, what what are you doing? I mean, there's just so many instances where Whoa. you know they get hostile. It's like, no, I'm trying to help, man. Um, you even look at uh, the Panera situation, right? When they first responded to this guy, like, oh, are you you trying to scam us? It's like, no, man. They asked, he asked for your PGP key so that he could encrypt the content and give it to you in a responsible way. And you're attacking the guy. Like, that is not a good posture to take. 
but this is common. Like uh, there, there's, it's so hard in a lot of instances to sanely hand this off. So again, I've, I've seen people that will take it and uh, they'll give it off to people that are uh, in larger companies where they have legal safety nets. Um, and that's, that's another mechanism. Some people will just sit on it and they're like, well, I'm not touching this. It's too much risk, but you, you can hand it off to, uh, companies in other ways. Um, you know, pro- basically proxying it for you. And, uh, generally when it's a bigger company doing the disclosure, you're going to get a lot more press. So there's plenty of incentives to accept this directly from the small researchers. So like do it if you can. And the best way is giving them legal assurance. A lot of people think there needs to be money and there's a, I'd say it's around 50% of researchers probably who are even interested in money. Um, so, so accept, make it as easy for everybody. Um, there's, there's a kind of a push for security.txt. If you just Google that, it's kind of a, it's in draft form, I believe, but it's, it's a kind of a template of having, um, much like robots.txt on your site. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, it's a standard location. You go there and you check what, you know, is allowed to happen on your site. So for the security.txt, um, you look for that, and that's where companies should start putting what their what their security contact is, like how to contact them, what their policy is, and you just all all the details they would want. Some people even put hiring info up there, but uh, that that's a great another great example. Just make it as easy as possible, and give them some legal assurance that what they're about to disclose to you, they don't have to actually worry about. Uh, you're not going to come after them, and that you know makes you look like a mature company too. So do that. Um, from the researcher side, not every, very few companies are doing this right now. So I, I've heard different opinions about, you know, big companies will come at you or, you know, it's the small companies that have no idea what they're doing. So they take everything as a threat. So I've, I've heard it all and um, it's definitely a mix. So yeah, do your research on the company, look for these things that indicate their security posture and then contemplate you know, what, what potential risks you're taking here? You know, is this company getting mad at you? There, there are mechanisms out there that people are trying to set up that allow uh, kind of anonymous proxying of data. I think there's like a zero disclosure site out there. It uses uh, like Tor to transmit things. And then uh, they, they work with uh, like CERT and other companies to then dispatch it to the com- uh, the, the impacted company. Uh, you know, really cool approach, but um, you know, there, there's lots of ways. So thinking about you know how you're going to disclose this and how much risk you're putting yourself in, um, there's there's a wide uh, option of litigation techniques that can come at you. But uh, but Amazon never threatened anybody. No, no, they were super cool. Yeah. That, so that you know, I kind of lucked out there to some yeah. extent. Yeah. But um, so it sounds like you just kind of ruffled the feathers of the PR, yeah. social media people, yeah. but. But yeah. it sounds like you got you got pretty lucky also in that um, that that they didn't bring the hammer down on you. It was just oh yeah, it was just some PR person who that just happened recently, just the other day with the T Mobile in in Austria. Oh god, yeah, yeah. Did you yeah. see that? I saw that they their their uh, customer service or their their comms team was effectively you know disclosing the fact that they don't encrypt uh, passwords and it's visible. Or they only encrypt CS like team. part of it. Yeah, well, there's a question. Yeah, that's what's visible to yeah. the agent. It's I suspect the whole password is treated the same way. Um, yeah. It's not just uh, yeah. Because first, it, why would yeah. you only see the first couple digits yeah. of it? That's it's, it's probably masked. But yeah, I don't I don't yeah. know. But yeah, as an example, and and with the Amazon thing, there, uh, like I said, when I when I first put it out there, I didn't disclose the technical details by intent. It was kind of just throw it out there. Um, 
I didn't actually expect it to blow up quite as much as it did. But yeah, it was it was it was out there to you know kind of have some fun. Like obviously, I put you know some energy into just making it look fun, not just mm-hmm. pure disclosure. So there were, there was that aspect. But uh, some people do uh, kind of resort to throwing it out there and putting them on blast at, as more of a last resort. The Panera Bread is probably another great example. Of that mm-hmm. eight months of trying to work in you know as an independent researcher. They ignored them, and then Krebs is knocking on your door, like, "Hey, this is going to happen." Okay, now we're going to fix it. You know, it was a few hours, and they didn't actually fix it. So that's that's another reason that this is unfortunately they they some companies need motivation that come in the form of publicity. So that's been a common thing, and that's gen- yeah, it depends on how you do it. You know, if you're not disclosing the technical details, maybe you're a little more safe. That's kind of what my assumption was, but. Um, it's certainly more risky. So, yeah, if you're going to disclose it all, be careful. What kind of blowback did you get from the InfoSec community? Not much in that sense. Really? Because I would ex- I would expect people like, oh, this is fake. Oh, and I'll tell you X, Y, and Z. Wow, this isn't this didn't happen. <laughs> like, was there anything like that? Um, there actually, I don't think it was InfoSec themselves, but yeah, there was a few people, and I've had that on almost every project I put out there. Uh, somebody calling it fake. Yeah, um, you got it's, it's everything's fake on the internet, right? <laughs> I thought every I thought I thought everything was real on the internet, but apparently, like. Yeah, it doesn't matter. People are going to want to. Ju- I think it's yeah. just a, an, an urge, just a primal urge to debunk things. Yeah. Like everybody's got to. Kind of good. There's a lot yeah, of. Yeah, you should have skeptic. Yeah. Healthy skepticism is good. Yes. So, you know, that's fine. I'll, I'll tell people if I can in, the, in this situation that it's not fake. I think the one person they picked up on it was good. Um, the lock on my the front of my door was you know the lock I had on there yeah and it's like wait I don't see the you know the smart lock what's up this must be fake and well the thing is the Amazon key only works on the inside of your door it just attaches to your existing lock me- mechanism which is awesome because then you can use a higher security lock at least on the outside and and just put it put it on the backside so you know they couldn't see that so yeah hey at least you know they kind of get why they said that cool what else uh oh. This uh, portal gun. <laughs> yeah. What's that, dude? So that that uh, the Gruk made something called Portal. Oh, you mean the guy who's from Seven Samurai? Uh, I don't know. His his avatar is one of the characters. Oh, oh yeah, from yeah, Seven correct. Samurai. I'm like, what? <laughs> um, yeah, you know, he's he's really uh, a fun guy to to follow on Twitter. If you don't, uh, very a lot of a lot of really good stuff, but um. He made something called Portal. Um, so Tor, let's just talk about Tor so I can talk about Portal. Tor, um, I assume most viewers know what Tor is to some extent. Uh, it's obfuscating the network connections. Um, you go in a browser, right? You connect to a site. Your ISP can see that you're connecting to it. The site can see where you're coming from. There's, there's a lot of info that happens. Uh, Tor adds... A few layers of uh, anonymous pathways, so it's it's a lot harder to find you um, and what you're connecting to. Um, you know, commonplace for you know dark nets, things like that. That's why you know there, there's plenty of stuff that exists within Tor. Uses Tor. There's plenty of you awesome know Rudy reasons. Giuliani's protecting me from the dark net now. <laughs> or is the dark web wonderful? Is it the, the deep uh, web or the deep net or the dark deep w- web net? Oh, let's let's call up uh, Giuliani. And ask. Yeah. 
Anyway, sorry, I derailed you there. Sorry, keep going. <laughs> no, it's fine. Um, so, so, so Tor is is the is what Portal runs works works uh, on top of. Let, yeah, let me explain this. So, basically, okay. a common um, there, there's a the the Tor software generally will be run on the same machine that the person is using. So, mm-hmm. yeah. you can do things that. Uh, malicious javascript things like that if you happen to load it in your browser it can leak your ip address and then cat's out of the bag that's who you are Mm -hmm. um and depending on what situation you're in that that's going to really suck so what um there's what you can do and there's other platforms and solutions that do this but you can take the tor software and move it onto a physical piece of hardware that is separate from your computer you know much like you have a router that's doing the uh, traffic handling upstream. So if your laptop over there gets compromised, uh, the upstream device that is handling your network does not. You're, you're, uh, you stay encapsulated in that Tor bubble. So what portal, when, when uh, the Gruck made portal, it was designed to be deployed on a cheap Raspberry Pi. Many advantages for that. It's cheap. It's super common. It's not going to raise suspicion that you're buying this hardware. But you effectively are making a Tor router on the Pi. And you plug directly into the Pi and um, it hands your traffic off upstream but fully encapsulated in Tor. Uh, Very valuable um, tool to have. I decided to just basically rebuild that, add some anonymizing techniques like Mac Mac address changing, things like that. Just just to see. It's just a, a fun project. Add that to it and then add uh, basically a uh, long-range Yagi antenna to it so I could connect to a much further away, which in the spirit of you know, Tor and this whole process, that completely makes sense. You also want to physically remove yourself from what you're trying to connect to. Uh, you can also – yeah, you can use it as kind of the point of entry. You could technically also set it up as more of a uh, pivot relay so that um, you're not coming in through the Pi. You're coming into the network, goes into the Pi – and then it pivots you back out, which is you know, basically a proxy in, in some extent there. And, uh, yeah, a decent amount of the uh, improvements that um, I ended up making to this uh, found from uh, Jamie uh, Ackflag's repo. So that was uh, a nice little addition around the time. Rest in peace. Yes. Um, okay, what else do we have here? USB condoms. <laughs> Yes. First of all, what the hell is a USB condom? I didn't even know. I, I've been practicing unsafe USBing. It'll happen. Yeah. Well, what, what the hell is USB USB condom and what's a bad one? So uh, charging. Uh, I can't remember how many years ago the, the term juice jacking kind of connects in with this. So uh, you take your USB charging cable. Same concept as a laptop, but you know phones have had now had it for a very long time. Uh, you're charging off of a data port with your phone you can effectively have a malicious USB port. Uh, At least this is where the origins came from. So you could install a malicious port in a common space and say, hey, you know, come charge your phone or, you know, plug it in the, inside the the hotel uh, furniture, things like that. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And you can do malicious things to a phone through that. So thing is you don't really need those data lines. You just want the power. The USB condom effectively disconnects the data lines uh, and still allows power to be transmit. The circuitry in there, there's, you know, resistors. There's a, it, it depends on the port and a bunch of other things. The uh, standardized protocol of USB is super not standardized. It's a complete mess. So kind of a nightmare to deal with. 
But uh, that's that's the summary of it. So that's kind of this little one-inch chunk of plastic or whatever that you plug into the port, and then you plug your phone into that, and it protects you from anything malicious. It turns it into just strictly something to power your device. Exactly. Okay. Now, you know, a bunch of people... you know, I, I kind of have this sequence. You know, I, I put something up. Somebody says, "This is the solution. You can't, you can't uh, hurt me if uh, I just do this." So you know, I make it. And the same thing with the USB C. So I decided. Challenge accepted. Yeah, I'm like fine, okay, cool, let's do it. Um, so I did that with the a couple of different condoms out there. I uh, implanted them effectively with uh, this this hardware. And the condom itself can attack. And now I, most people actually – nobody noticed this that, that I noticed is I actually installed the attack on the uh, untrusted side. So it was attacking the, the laptop instead of you know the phone, which is technically what the condom is protecting. But I, I just did it for sake of speed. I can connect it to either end. But anyway, yeah, I stuck the hardware in there and it runs an attack on either side that I want it to. And it was kind of fun. Um, a couple different makers of those products kind of reached out to me and noticed, which is kind of cool. I, I didn't even – I thought this was going to just be like a throwaway video. Like, hey, yeah, I did that thing too, so don't don't bring that up. Um, no, they, they kind of reached out and they're like, yeah, that's either A, why we're um, keeping the – visible version of our product out there is you can kind of visually audit the board, um, which is, you know, it's a nice improvement. You can technically still put stuff inside of the actual, uh, uh, I don't know what portion of the, the port that's called, but the, the end of the cable where the contact pads are, you can technically fit stuff under there too. But yeah, hey, nice, you know, whatever improvements we can add, that's great. And another, I think, is actually going to overhaul portions of their design. So that's kind of cool. Have you ever had to do anything with Firewire? Firewire. I have not in a long time. <laughs> Do you feel like you lucked out that the ind- that the industry standard defaulted to USB instead of Firewire? Um, I uh, man, I haven't looked Would, into it in quite a while, but no, I I definitely have a bunch of externals for the the old MacBooks and things like that. Mm-hmm. So never tried playing around with them. I liked Firewire. I thought it was great. I you know I used to do a lot of video editing and stuff, and I thought it was. I thought it was great. I thought it was stable, that I was fast, and I liked it better than USB at the time. But yep. it's like, you know, VHS and Betamax, you know. Now we got went, Thunderbolt, man. Yeah. Which is oh, interesting. God. Because Thunderbolt. So, oh, okay. What's up with Thunderbolt? Um, I have not touched this. It's, it's another thing on my bucket list. But if you Google around for something called Thunderstrike and Thunderstrike 2, um, you know those Thunderbolt dongles? Mm-hmm. Um, somebody used one of those to do a DMA attack, DMA attack, direct memory access. So instead of being a keyboard and typing, you mm-hmm. literally just access the system memory. Um, so the Thunderstrike t- attack itself made a malicious dongle. You can, I think they did some overriding of the uh, what's inside of the dongle itself. You plug it in and then it does some sort of rewrite onto your EFI equivalent to your BIOS. Basically, you can wipe your drive and the EFI is still there with whatever happened to it. So uh, that was kind of magic because there is no user interaction for that. There's, you know, the screen can be unlocked, whatever. You plug in and there it is. You've been thunderstruck. Exactly. And they had the whole ACDC up there for the uh, the Thunder. It's all built-in marketing, man. I know, man. Stuff like this self-promotes itself, man. (laughs) 
but that would be another fun thing to start implanting in in other devices. The the silly uh, lightning headphone situation, just because I dislike them so much, I've been thinking about what I can stick in the little tiny boot of the lightning connectors so that you can put it in the headphones themselves. You're, it's another thing you're going to look at. You're like, yeah. there is nothing unsafe about this. But then you plug it in and you've got a data connection there to your phone with whatever's inside that cable. Would be a lot of fun to play around with. Um, it seems like everything is going towards, at least app, Apple products mm-hmm. are going t- towards less and less ports. And it's just like one USB port. <laughs> and they have to have this dongle with, you know, for their HDMI, for their regular USB, for, for, for whatever. And, um, I mean, obviously this is going to the point where it's just, everything's going to be wireless. Everything's going to, there's not going to be anything thing to, to plug in anymore. What would be the, what sort of attack vector is going to replace this, this sort of stuff? Do you think? And, um, well, Bluetooth and wireless and yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there are some things out there. A lot of people didn't even really touch it. The, the Blueborn thing, you know, that came out with such crazy marketing that I think a lot of people looked at that and said, wow, this can't be as legit as it looks, but stuff like that certainly does exist. And that, that seemed like something you could turn into a fun uh, worm. And I'm just imagining that being distributed in a, in a dense urban area. Um, but honestly, even the, the single port thing, like this USB-C port that has Thunderbolt on it, that has you know power and all these other things. So technically, yeah, you could still do direct memory uh, fun down the power cable. So until they figure out power, that's not data, you know, different issue. I wish they'd go back to MagSafe, man. That was a perfectly good interface. Uh, the, the last gen MacBooks were just perfect, but yeah. oh well. Yeah, uh, with the wireless stuff, there's. Uh, it's really cool that uh, SDR, uh, Software Defined Radio, mm-hmm. has really become much cheaper. Uh, there's just a lot of things that exist over various radio frequencies that oh, there there doesn't exist commercial uh, easy cheap hobbyist type radios. There hadn't existed uh, prior to SDR, so you can start looking at things that nobody had really been looking at before, things that were just, you know, secure through their obscurity uh, that a lot of people are starting to play around with. And you can find some really cool stuff. Like I was over, um, where was it? There was a go-kart thing in Dublin, I think it was. I was somewhere in the East Bay, right? And I, it's an electric go-kart. Those things go pretty fast. But I, uh, we, we noticed that the entire circuit is controlled via, you know, an RF controller of some sort. You know, that's the, it's a safety mechanism to you know, stop those cars, slow them down, whatever it may be when there's, you know, accidents out there. It would have been interesting to kind of bring some SDR software in there and just look at how that works and see if you can manipulate it, do replay attacks, things like that. Um, never got a chance to do that, and I think that would be very dangerous to do. <laughs> but... As an example, it's just literally everywhere, and mm-hmm. um, you can you can probably find some fun stuff. Nice. Well, this has been a fun conversation. Yeah, man. I, I really appreciate you sharing all this with me, uh, with us, the listeners. Um, okay, so MG. Yeah. What's up with the thug crowd? Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. So, is that something you're part of? Yeah, um, there's a uh, IRC crew that there's a lot of really productive stuff that comes out of there. I, I love that that group. It's, it's gone through a few iterations of the name, but basically, kind of a, a live podcast approach. 
still basically working out a lot of things, like even the radio quality portion of it and, you know, uh, how, do, how do we get so many people together and not talk over each other. But it's it's a really cool approach of just discussing things um, and we're still figuring out the format. But uh, last week we had a district attorney from Georgia on and that was awesome that we, we could get that set up. It she was, was great, by yeah. the way. I I, I, nice. I listened to it. Yes. Very informative. Yeah. I would love more feedback yeah. uh, on that whole thing so we can improve it. Mm-hmm. But that that was great. And we're starting – we're still feeling, again, how we're going to do this. But we now have it's, – it's still getting ironed out. But uh, Joe Cox from Motherboard mm-hmm. has agreed to also come and do, do some chat with us, which is really cool. Um, so we'll see what that turns into. But it's it's fun. Yeah. yeah check out uh, – it's what? At Thug Crowd on Twitter. Yep, Thug Crowd. And the show's called Hard Chats? Yes. Don't uh, Yeah, I don't have an explanation at the moment. <laughs> and, uh, okay, so if folks want to stalk you on the internet, yeah, how yeah. can they go about doing that? So uh, on Twitter, I am underscore MG underscore. Um, I actually just recently spun up a domain, mg.lol. So that that'll be my anchor for the time being. Yeah, that's good because you you've got you've got so much going on in your on your Twitter feed. It, it'll be nice to have one a one stop place yes. where we can we can all check all this stuff out rather than stalking your timeline. Not that it's not fun oh. stalking your timeline. <laughs> that is what people have been telling me, and I'm so lazy with it. It's just like you know, I'm throwing stuff out there to have yeah, fun. Yeah, you're, you're and busy doing pro- you're doing thing. projects. Yeah, you don't have time to promote to promote this crap. You Can't just even curate it, man. Yeah, just here, figure it out. Yeah, no, I love it, man. I think you're doing some really cool stuff, and I, nice. I can't wait to see see what's next. Awesome. Thanks, man. Thank Appreciate you. It. MG, security researcher. Check him out on Twitter, underscore MG, underscore, and the website is mg.lol. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Vince in the Bay podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Check out my bloggity blog at vincentthebay.com and hit me up on Twitter at Vincent the Bay. Until next time, ciao.